Bible study. Uh, Pastor Steve here. We are in the Acts of the Apostles, part 6. And uh, tonight we'll be dealing with uh, Acts chapter 6 and probably uh, into Acts chapter 7. I think I can do all of this because Acts chapter 7 is a lot of narrative, uh, but it's important narrative to the story of the early church. And this is what we're looking at in the Acts of the Apostles. It's a story the first 35 years of the church. And what uh, we'll be dealing with tonight is uh, where deacons are appointed. So let's just go ahead straight to that. Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 8. And just as a, a way of prefacing this, at this point there's only one church. It's the church in Jerusalem. But again, remember, there's not a church building. They're not meeting in a church building. Uh, Christianity is not an official religion. We cannot buy or sell property. That won't be for 300 years yet. So they're meeting in homes. Uh, and that's why it says in the scripture, they're meeting uh, day by day, breaking bread in various homes uh, along the way. That's how the church was uh, first put together in Jerusalem. So here we are, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So let me hold it there. Hellenistic Jews means Greek-speaking Jews. They most likely were converts. They were raised in a Greek culture, and then they... Uh, accepted the Jewish faith, but their first language was Greek. So when it says Hellenistic Jews, that's what it means. So the complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. You see the difference? The native Hebrews. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now remember what was going on. They had all things in common. They were sharing as anyone would have need. But now as the church is growing, and I say this all the time, you know, change causes problems. The church is growing. Things are changing day by day. So there's a problem here. Some people are now being overlooked. So the church now has to apply a correction. They have to do something to handle this. And one of the offices of the church now comes into play. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, they were about teaching and doing a lot of things. They had a lot on their plate, but there was a lot of other things that needed to be done. You know, the serving and taking care of people on a day-to-day -day basis and meals and stuff like this. So verse 3, But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, notice capital S, that means Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may, we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So right here what you have is now the beginning of, of a, a, a church system. You have those that are going to be devoting themselves to prayer and to teaching. You're going to have those now that are going to be do devoting themselves to uh, serving. Verse 4. But we have devoted ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, uh, and Timon, and Parmenius, Nicholas, a uh, proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So at this point, what you have now is the office, uh, the position of a deacon. Deacon basically means servant. And so they needed someone who was going to be serving. Uh, you know, later on, the, the role of a deacon is that, that they serve, they set up, they do things. They assist the pastor, in a sense, in the, in the order of service. 
you know, your deacons in the present day church, you know, they would be the ones who would be doing the setup. And if you begin doing communion, they set up communion. If things need to be set up, they would do that. They're the ushers. They take the tithes. They do all those kind of things like that. It's a, it's a service-based ministry, but it is a ministry that requires uh, wisdom. It requires, obviously, being saved. You know, it's just full of the Spirit and wisdom. Uh, it's also a good starting point or a good jumping-off point for someone that might, in uh, after this, move up in the ministry, you know, along the way. So it, it is a it is about serving. So it's a Greek word, diakonos, and what it means is a servant. So we get the word deacon. Um, now notice something else here in verse 7. It says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So now you had Sadducees were becoming Christians. Remember, Sadducees were the priests. They were the ones in charge of the temple. And now because of the preaching of Peter and John and uh, and, and, and uh, things that have been going on, now they are coming to faith in this. You know, these are people that uh, knew of Jesus, knew of the, of the death and the resurrection and all that, but for whatever reason, they were not believers in the beginning. But now... Uh, after the resurrection and ascension and the early acts of the church, uh, they now become uh, believers. And so this is uh, big. So thoughts and questions on that before we go any farther? Because the role of deacon gets spelled out later on, uh, especially in, um, in, in Timothy and Titus, you know, the qualifications for them, you know, who, who they should be and stuff like that. That comes up a bit later, but this right here is where uh, deacons are appointed, where it first starts. Okay. And don't forget, you have an early church, uh, so things aren't being put in place yet because they're not ready for them yet. But as the church gets larger, as it expands, and especially once the church leaves Jerusalem, now you're going to have to have a, a a whole set of administration, you know, and so that comes up later. So now you have Stephen, verse 8, full of grace, God's grace, and power was performing great wonders. Now that word power there is dunamis, and it's the same word that is used in Acts 1.8. It says when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power. Dunamis is God's power to enable you to do ministry. So he's full of grace, full of, full of God's favor, and the ability to to minister, the ability to share the gospel. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was standing out because of his faith, because of his position, uh, because of the things that he was doing. God obviously singled him out. So now, verse 9 to 15. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, these are people from northern Africa, and some from Cilicia and Asia, this is uh, Turkey, uh, Greece, present day, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right here I get a picture of, of someone evangelizing, almost like a street witness kind of thing and preaching the gospel and then you have some people who who uh, think they know more than you do or whatever and now they're trying to challenge him but like it says in verse 10 they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking and this is what's important when you share the gospel whether it's uh, privately with someone or publicly with someone God is with you and so the power of God is there uh, to refute and, and do that. That's why, uh, you know, we took six weeks to teach uh, uh, evangelism. And, and I want to remind you that, that that class is available on our website, uh, six weeks of evangelism. And so you will be able to get uh, uh, um, all of that teaching on, on evangelism. And so... Uh, 
So again, verse 10, and they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. I'm in Acts chapter 6, verse 10. There's also, Adrian, could you give her a hand up? Thank you. So verse 11. Then they were secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So now here's Stephen, who's doing great signs and wonders after he becomes a deacon. Uh, and now they're uh, trying to oppose him. And uh, they can't refute what he's saying uh, biblically. He's a strong teacher. And so now they're secretly trying uh, to say that he's speaking out against God, blaspheming against God and, and against Moses. And, uh, you know, this was the same tactic that they used against Jesus, speaking out against uh, God. He's blaspheming God. He's blaspheming Moses and all this. This is nothing, nothing new. But what you get here is crowd menta- uh, crowd mentality. You know, you get a crowd together and then you get people to speak a lie in the middle of the crowd and then some of them go along with it and then now they start repeating the, the lie. So verse 12, And they stirred up the people and elders and scribes and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. You know, it says they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes. Uh, this is talking Jews. This is not the church. This is not church elders. And these are scribes, those that uh, translated, not translated, but copied um, scripture. So they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. Now this is interesting. They drag him before the same council that they took uh, 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 Peter and John to and, and tried to get Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And remember, they, they, they brought Peter and John twice before the council, and the second time they flogged them and told them, don't uh, go out and preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And so now here's Stephen doing this, and again, along the way, the church is growing. We're in the infancy stages of the church, uh, and, and the church is growing. Uh, and so now this movement of God that the ruling class, the Sanhedrin and others, thought was going to kind of go away, is now growing. And uh, and now it becomes even more of a threat to them, because they thought with the death of Jesus, they were going to get rid of of Jesus and what Jesus was bringing, what Jesus was teaching. But then, you know, after the resurrection and ascension, then the church age begins in in Acts chapter 2, and now the church is just growing along and so the ruling council which is the Sanhedrin are now up in arms of what they're going to do with this so they now drag him before the council verse 13 and they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law you know this the Sanhedrin was the ruling class they were the Jewish religious leaders remember when Jesus. They brought Jesus to the Sanhedrin first and to bring him up on charges of blasphemy against God. And then they took him to Pilate, the Roman law. So that was the order. You went to the Jewish council first and then you went to Roman uh, law if you were going to, if you were going to be punished by Rome. So they have these people to put forth false witness. It says this man incessantly speaks against the holy place, meaning the temple, and the law, the law meaning the scriptures. And at this point, the scriptures are the Old Testament. New Testament has not been written yet. Verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and after the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So here they are false witness against him, and then they try and twist the words of of Jesus when Jesus prophesied against the temple, talking about, you know, one day, you know, no stone will be left unturned. He was prophesying about the overthrow of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, which is at this point 35 years away. 
And so there's, you know, they're 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 trying to Trump bring him up on Trump charges or on on anything that they can to convict him. But yet when they look upon him, uh, all who were sitting in the council saw his face, like the face of an angel. You know, uh, you can you can speculate as to what that looked like. You know, in pictures when you see artwork, you know, it's generally with a glow behind or the face is illuminated somewhere. We don't know exactly what that is, but obviously there was something going on that they looked at him and and saw something that, you know, resembled the face of an angel. You would think that right there would stop him. You know, you'd think that would get their attention. But, uh, you know, when you have a mob mentality, when you have people that are just out for themselves... They do not want to hear what you have to say. They don't want to hear the evidence. They push it all away. They push it all aside. So what you have so far in our study tonight, Acts chapter 6, the church is growing. The Hellenistic Jews are having a little bit of a problem with the native Hebrew Jews saying that our, our, our widows aren't being fed and being taken care of. And so they decide to put together the deacons uh, this is where deacons come into play, which means servants. They're not going to serve and do things while the apostles will now be doing be about prayer and about teaching. And then you have others who will be about the serving and, and doing a lot of things. So the church is growing. And then you have Stephen, one of the, the first deacons, is with power and wisdom. He's going out and he's preaching and he gets dragged into the Sanhedrin because they're just upset with him. Okay. Any thoughts, questions before we go into first seven? Good. Okay. I'm just saying we see some of this going on today. It's not necessarily against Christians. Oh. <laughs> you know, I'm thanks. Thanks for saying that because, yeah, as, as I'm teaching this, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, too. it's there's nothing new under the sun here, and I'm I'm trying not to make it sound like I'm I'm, I'm taking this and applying it directly at something. But this is what's going on. This is it. So, you know, when God says there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under the sun. But this validates the word of God. It's a word of God. This is written, you know, 2,100 years ago. Uh, this happened 2,100 years ago, but yet it's as valid today as it was then. You know, so this is this is the power of God and the power of his, his word. So, yeah, thanks for, for bringing that out. So now you have Stephen. This next 50 verses I'm going to read. It's all narrative, and it's interesting, because normally, you know, we stop and we break things up. I, I might say something, or if you have a question about something, just raise your hand. But it's basically, he's going to go into uh, Judaism 101. He's basically going to summarize the Old Testament. And listen to the way uh, Stephen rehashes, not rehashes, but talks about the historical side of the Bible. Because what he's doing, he's talking to people that know the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, and so he's trying to make a point, so he takes them right into the Hebrew Bible, and he goes right to the very beginning, and now he does this narrative thing, and then he does a conviction thing at the end. Okay, so if you have a point or a question or something, please just, just raise your hand along the way. But this is all narrative, but it's also narrative that you get a little bit more insight, but it's also excellent narrative to kind of remember that if you ever want to tell someone the story of the Bible, the Old Testament especially, boom, it's right here. You, you follow this, and they, they, will, they will get that. Obviously not every little detail, but they will get the narrative of it, and then you take them into the Gospels. So chapter 7, um, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? In other words, what their charges they were bringing them up on. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now Abraham is where the Jewish nation begins. Okay? That's where it all begins. It begins with Abraham. That's why they call him Father Abraham. And so, the, you know, and this is uh, Genesis chapter 12. 
He says, The glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram, Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country, from your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country which we are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him, and rescued him from all of his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, visit Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there passed away he and our fathers. And from there they removed to Shechem and laid he was laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for the sum of money from the sons of Hamar of Shechem. But as the time of promise was approaching which God had assured to Abraham the people increased and multiplied in number until there arose another king over Egypt who nothing who knew nothing about Joseph. He just right there in uh, 17 verses, gave you uh, Genesis. That's the story of Genesis right there. Okay? So a new king raises up. There's 75 people, right? The, the, the patriarch's family. So realize that 75 people stayed in Egypt that later on, uh, in Moses' time when they come out, were numbered at uh, 2.5 million people after 400 years. Because don't forget, God said, I will multiply you. You know, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply you. Uh, so, verse 19. But it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, mistreated our fathers, so that they would expose their infants, that they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born, this is the beginning of Exodus. And he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of forty, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Remember, he's... Jewish, he's sons of Israel, but he's raised as an Egyptian, and he knows it because it doesn't say it here. But remember, his sister is with him as he grows up, uh, and his mother also nursed him. Verse 24 And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, 
You are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight, and he approached to look more closely. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is a direct reference and pointing towards Messiah, pointing towards Jesus. Verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together, the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. This is where he went up to the mountain and received the commandments and came back down with them. Verse 39. And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. This is where they made the golden calf. Saying to Aaron, who was Moses' brother, make for us gods who will Go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. This is why he's up on the mountain. And at the time, and at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them to serve the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rompha, the images which you made to worship them. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. That's a reference to the house idols uh, of of the Egyptians that they took with them. Some of the people took those uh, idols with them. Verse 44, our fathers had the wilderness of testimony, had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen, now in the book of Numbers. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua before disposing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. Now all of a sudden you're in the book of David, right? So he's talking about real quick, because again, he's repeating a history to people that know the history. So he's not going into a lot of detail. He's just building up to something here. He's, he's kind of crescendoing. He says, you know, and, and, and came out and they were delivered and this and then, you know, and then with Joshua, they entered into the promise, into the promised land. And, uh, and then the next time God is going to move is with, uh, with uh, David. So, verse 46, it says, And David found favor in God's sight, and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. In other words, you know the story of David. David wanted uh, to build the temple. He wanted to build it next to his own home, and God told him, no, uh, someone else will build that. But it was David that moves the tabernacle uh, um, in the wilderness. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, verse 47. 
However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose or resting? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So now he goes 50 verses, and, and well, less than 50 verses, but he kind of gives them a, a shorter than a Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament, telling them the journey to where they're at. And, and I always, you know, I always say this about Scripture. If God puts something in the Bible, we need to take a moment and think about why did he put that in there? Because we already have the story. And then why does Stephen now use this story? You know, and, and why is it done the way it is? And then what does it mean to us? You know, uh, for me... It, it reminds me that I need to know the journey. I need to know the story. I need to know the path because in the journey and in the path is where God moves and how God works. God doesn't work outside of, the, out of Alpha and Omega, his way. Sometimes we want God to do it this way and that way, but God, it's already fixed. You know, uh, uh, the straight line, Alpha and Omega. God has already ordained what is to be uh, and how it is to be. But when you know the narrative, when you know the story, when you know the journey, then that journey, you see the hand of God. You see his protection. You see his His guidance, his wisdom. You also see his judgment. Uh, you know, you, you, you see God in action in all of this. So Stephen... Uh, uh, does all of this, but like in any good sermon, there has to be an application. It's one thing to know the story, but where's the application? So before I go into that, any thoughts or questions on Stephen's story? Because he he basically good he does uh, in a sense there he what he does is uh, Genesis Exodus Numbers. Touches Joshua and then goes into First and Second Samuel, kind of giving the the uh, the narrative there. So, so it's which al- is, huh? it's almost like um, he's telling them he knows the history, so therefore you should know the history you as to the house we created, and this is the man who elaborate on that a little bit more. So he goes through like the whole history of the Jewish people. And what led them to building the house of worship for God and for them to not even recognize Jesus when he originally came. Boom, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you don't, you don't waste a story here. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a reason for the story. It says, God's put, put us on this journey for a reason. Do you know the lessons of it? Do you know the outcome? Do you know what it's pointing to? That's why I always say that the Old Testament, if I use this side of the room, the Old Testament, Genesis forward, it's all pointing towards the cross. And then the New Testament is just the Old Testament pulled through the cross. In other words, this is what God was saying. This is what it now means now that it is finished. And this is now how the church is to operate based on all of that. So all of it fits together. And that's why uh, next week and the, and the weeks after when we start getting into Paul, Paul is the real architect, the one who really takes the Old Testament and brings it through the cross. It's really a marvelous uh, bit of theology there. So any other questions, thoughts, comments? Good? Okay. Verse 51. This is the application or indictment in a sense. And he goes right after it. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Ouch. You know, you know it says, you know, you're stiff-necked. In the Old Testament, it says, you're a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And this is what he's saying again. You know, you are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. It means there's no change. 
in the heart. You know, uh, God's looking at the heart for change. Uh, and, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. In other words, God spoke to us through the scriptures. See, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit today that speaks to us from the inside as we read the scriptures. He's saying, you know, the Holy Spirit spoke to you because they didn't have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Jews didn't. They just had it on select individuals. But you had the Holy Spirit in the story. You had the Holy Spirit in the work of God. And he says, and you resist it. God's talking to you through all that. That's why I say every every book in the Old Testament points to the cross. There's something there that points to the cross, the work of God, what God is doing, and He's saying you're 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 resisting it. This is this is what God is saying. This is what God is doing, and He's saying you're doing just what your fathers did, because that's why when the prophets came, all they said was, and, and by the way, classical prophet, a prophet does not come and say something to you that you don't know. A prophet comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, meaning this is what God has said. So the prophets would come and say to them, Because you have not done what you said you were going to do, because you did not obey the word of God, this is what's going to happen to you unless you repent. Again, this is almost New Testament kind of language here. You know, where the world's going down one one path and it's going to be destruction. But unless you return to God, to Christ through Christ, you know it's not going to turn out. It's not going to turn out well. And so, you know, they were always resisting. You know, wanting it their way and and, and all these things. And it says you you're doing just as your fathers did. And that's again that's why the that's why the prophets came over hundreds of years. The prophet came to remind the people, if you don't do it, God's going to take you off the land. And that's what he did. He took them off the land and uh, to, to show them, you know. And, and you would think that they would, that they would listen to it. You, you would think being the generation that, that was able to hear and see Jesus in the flesh, uh, you know, in the crucifixion and, and, and all of that, you would think uh, that they would get it, you know. Uh, but they didn't. They didn't want to, is what he's saying here. Uh, verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have become now. And you who received the law as ordained by angels, but yet did not Keep it. You who received the law, which he just spoke to them, you who received the scriptures, you who had that as ordained by angels, messengers given uh, by God, you didn't keep it. He says, just as your fathers didn't hear it, you didn't keep it. So, this is pretty bold uh, on Stephen's part because, remember, what does it say about Stephen? He's full of faith, wisdom, but also power, and we talked about that's dunamis, that's that power to do ministry. So he stands up in the midst of this ruling council that he knows has the ability to go thumbs up or thumbs down on him, has the ability to turn him over to Rome, has the ability to do pretty much whatever it is that they want to do. That doesn't stop him. And so, you know, kind of lesson for the church. It's sometimes the church in our history, when things have happened, we've been kind of mute and silent. You know, or like today, something, well, I don't want to get into anybody's face. I don't want to this and that. Think about Stephen. You know, he wasn't concerned about that. The, you know, it's like what Paul says, I just want to know one thing and one thing from you, and that's Jesus Christ resurrected. You know, that's uh, are you preaching the gospel? That's what I want to know. And so, you know, the church sometimes, you know, we, we take these side journeys uh, and we have to get back on track. And when we start preaching the gospel, like which they were doing, the early church was doing, you had signs and wonders and there were, people were adding day by day. But there was a certain boldness there 
um, that I think sometimes is lacking. Uh, um, you know, again, boldness as directed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, not everything that comes out of our mouths is going to be, thus saith the Lord, or God told me to do this. We have to make sure that this is what God is doing and, 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 and uh, uh, be on target with that. So when you preach the gospel, you know without a doubt you're, you're on target right there. So any thoughts, questions before I go on this last part? Um, for, for me, this is the most important part of the whole deal here. Uh, and the most interesting part. It's all important, but this part is really interesting to me. Verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. In other words, they were pretty angry. They wanted to get at him. They were not uh, willing to put up with this, because what was he doing? He was challenging their faith. He was challenging their very existence. He was challenging everything uh, who they thought they were, who they were supposed to be, and and he nailed it. And what happens when you do that with someone? Either one or two things is going to happen. Either they're going to be convicted in their heart, or they're going to get angry. And by the way, just a side note, when someone gets angry at you, when you're saying something to them, anger is actually fear. And a person responds in anger because they're trying to push you away from where you're going. That's what anger does. Because if you can shout louder than the other person, uh, you think you can get them to stop what they're doing. Or I'm going to pick up a hammer and I'm going to hit you with this, I'm going to whatever it is. You're trying to get them to stop. But the basic element behind that is fear. Because you know that person's gone someplace you don't want them to go. That's why we say, don't you go there. Don't you go there. We try and stop it. But that's what anger does. Anger always tries to deflect. But anger doesn't have any reason. Because when somebody's angry, they're not angrily giving you all the reasons why you're wrong and they're right. They're just trying to get you to stop. Because they're fearful. And this is what's going on with these people. Their very existence uh, is is getting ready to change. Uh, you know, and they see it coming and some of them are realizing, okay, we did it wrong, but yet in their mind they're saying, well, who do you think you are to tell me this? It's just like when you evangelize someone, or especially someone in your family. They say, well, who do you think you are? I remember you when you were, you know, Try and throw that at you. So verse 54 again says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, being full of the Holy Spirit. Notice, being full of the Holy Spirit. This is God. At this moment, this is he was, he was full of the power of God. That dunamis power, 1A, you will receive power. Dunamis, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. He's full of this. It says, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So while all this commotion is going on around him, what does he do? Full of this power of God to say and do just about anything at this point, he looks up to heaven. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now I'm going to ask a question and then I'm going to continue reading. Scripture tells us Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So my question is, what made Jesus stand up? Let's continue reading. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they refused, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. Notice, they cried out, they screamed with a loud voice, they covered their ears. They, they, they just didn't want to hear this anymore. I can't, I can't take this anymore. It's just no, and like with this mob, they, 
they rushed him. Now, this is God at work doing something here. They cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know this is the one who eventually will be the apostle Paul. And by the way, the robes, the robes is very interesting uh, because again, remember when I tell you about the woman with the issue of blood, which she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. I don't have it in here. It's, it's in there. But a prayer shawl has a tizat on the end of it. It's a, it's a string. And according to numbers, a devout believer would, a male, would wear an outer garment that would there was a linen undergarment and there was a long outer garment that had tassels on the end of it. And that's what she reached out to touch. And that is what, on the day of uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, it says they took off their garments and they laid it on the donkey and they laid it on the roadside. Now, if you understand that it was a commandment of God to wear that, the symbolism behind them taking that off for Jesus, this is some, this is our King. We 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 you you wouldn't do that for anyone, you know, but God. And so now you have them. Uh, these guys, uh, the council was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees again were the ruling. Uh, class of the Jews, Pharisees were more of a lay movement, but together they made up the council, along with a few other people, Zealots and some of the others. But here now they're they're taking off their garments because they're getting ready to kill someone. They're stoning this man. They chased him outside in this this mob and now they're throwing it out in a little side note. They're, they're throwing it down at the feet of Saul, who next week we're going to find out was in hearty agreement with what they were doing. So whether he was standing there cheering them on or whatever it was, but for whatever reason they threw it down at, at his feet. So they're taking that garment off to go rush Stephen and stone him. Uh, by the way, you know, they did not stone Jesus. Stoning is the Jewish form of severe punishment. Uh, crucifixion is a Roman death. That's why he was handed over to Pontius Pilate and he was crucified. It's a Roman death. Here, they just took it upon themselves to stone him, thinking that because he's, in their mind, blaspheming against God, it's going to be okay to kill him. But yet they're taking off those garments to go do it. 58, and when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord. In the midst of all this, he calls upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep, which is a metaphor for he died. Very powerful um, first martyr, which will mark uh, the early church. And even today, we have martyrs in the church. The church has always had its martyrs. But here, Stephen is the first uh, martyr. You know, I think it's kind of interesting that he's elected to be a servant. And how does he serve? By being the first martyr of the church. Um, going back to my question that I kind of want to end with here or talk about, a little bit is what made Jesus stand up? Why is Jesus standing? Why are we told 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father, but yet Stephen, gazing up into heaven, sees him standing. Anybody any thoughts? First thought I had was just the concept of the Trinity, right? God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit. So that was the first thought I that came to mind. So he's embodying all of them. But I could be wrong. Okay, let me say this. There's not going to be a specific right answer I'm after. Ah, gotcha. Okay, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm going to go in a particular direction, but I want to hear what you feel, what you see based on the scriptures. I think because he spoke so boldly at them in telling them that they didn't get it right, that they were the ones that were supposed to recognize who Jesus was mm-hmm. and and be there to worship him. And then they didn't do it, and he calls them out on the fact that they were to ordain. They were they were ordained to know this law, and then they didn't keep it. And then they rush him, and all of it happened in such a split second that Jesus knew what they were about to do to him, mm-hmm. and kill him. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of like there to welcome him in. Hold that thought. Anything else? Because there's a couple of prevailing thoughts. As you look at, uh, um, um, you know, when you go to seminary, there's always prevailing thoughts. (laughs) Professors have to write books, you know, so they sometimes come up with things. But, uh, you know, some of them feel that Jesus was standing up to worship what was going on. You know, um, uh, I can see that, but yet we are called to worship Christ. So, for me, that doesn't quite. Uh, uh, then, some would say that he's standing up, confessing Stephen's name to the Father. Yeah, oh, I like that better. You like that? That one's better. Uh, it's you know, standing is an action. You know, seated is, is one thing, standing is, is an action somewhat. So now you have the idea of he's saying the name. Another prevailing thought is he's acting as judge uh, in all of this because he does say, you know, do not judge them. You know, this, this sin that he's acting on judge as a judge, uh, uh, which... I think everything that was said tonight is is probably right in that ballpark. We don't have a defining word on Scripture which says it actually is, but I think what Adrian was saying uh, is close to uh, um, this fourth part, which a lot of scholars lean to, and I, I kind of lean towards that in the confessing of his name. I think they go hand in hand is that he was standing, getting, Jesus. Uh, He was standing, getting ready to receive. Yeah, that's what I think, standing to receive him. To receive him. So, uh, wow. You know, for me, that's a very powerful image. Because it's like, uh, what happens, you know, there'll be a time when he will stand to receive us as well, you know, because he said, I go prepare a place for you and all of that. So, you know, whether we're right on it or not or whatever, the, the point is, Stephen looks up, full of the Holy Spirit, could have said, done anything at that point could have God could have done some kind of miracle of fire and stopped them in their tracks or or whatever, but full of God, he looks up and he sees Christ standing. So at that point, is there that recognition of Stephen realizing he's going to die? I don't know. So, um, but for me, that idea of Christ standing to receive the idea of Christ confessing. Yes, this is my uh this is my servant. Well done. 
who's, who's, who's done this. You know, the uh, first martyr of the church. Um, this is a powerful thing. It's unexpected the way it, it comes about because what do, what do you have? You have the early church starting power. There's authority. There's healing is going on. Uh, uh, miracles, signs, and wonders. The lame man is is uh, is, uh, is is walking. Everybody's marveling. The church is growing. Uh, there's so many people that uh, now they have to have deacons, and uh, you get Stephen, full of faith and wisdom, power of God, uh, does a Bible study and gets stoned for it. You know, it's, it's unexpected. It's 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 not. But again, it becomes, you know, the marker of, of, of the church because uh, once the church, going past the book of Acts, once 70 AD happens, and, and that's where Rome destroys the temple, and the Jews are dispersed, which means also the Christians are dispersed, and now forces us to go up into Europe and into Africa and Asia, you know, now the persecution is still going to be there, but it's going to come from a lot of different areas. It's not just going to come from from a ruling council. Now it's going to really be ramped up by Rome. And then this is when you have the Colosseum and throwing the Romans, you know, to the lions and all of this other stuff and and, and all this persecution and stuff. And so the, the, the you know, the, the early church is, is, and even today, people die for the faith. And uh, but I think this passage with Jesus standing up is is that thing that that uh, sets it all not in motion, but kind of kind of kind of caps it. That, that Jesus is there; he's involved in this, and he's receiving him. You know, and you know things like this have to happen. You know, unfortunately, and this is why we're called to pray for one another. Uh, because uh, being the church isn't always easy. It isn't always going to be uh, a smooth road. There's going to be times where it's going to be difficult. And this is why without the Holy Spirit, we could not do this. Uh, uh, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. So at this point, the church is two years old. Right here. It's two years old. Next week, we're going to get into the beginning of uh, Saul in his persecution of the church and he later you know becomes Paul the apostle and so uh, from here you can have about another uh, 14 30 32 33 years of history uh, until about the year 60 66 68 somewhere in there that's about where the narrative stops um, and we know that because none of the scriptures tell us about the uh, tearing down of uh, uh, the temple. Um, the only one that could have would have been, been John. But, but the actual doing it, so that, that, that historically we know that Paul and Peter and all of them have already uh, died. They've already been martyred off by the year 70 AD. But the church is now moving up. So... Uh, thoughts, questions? Um, so next week we get into Paul. Just as a, as a background note, for the first 12 chapters or so, the main leader is Peter of the church. And then after that, it's going to be Paul. And you'll, we'll even get into a confrontation uh, between Peter and Paul over some things. And... and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. So again, the book of Acts tells the story of the first 35 years of the church, how the church was established, and then all of the epistles are written during this time. So as we get historically into that period to when James was written, when Corinthians was written, or Romans was written, we'll interject that and say, at this point, this is where uh, that was written. And most of those are written during uh, Paul's missionary journeys. He takes three missionary journeys, and we'll, and we'll talk about those. So, we good? Okay. Okay, praise God. Uh, let me just close out in a word of prayer. And just remind, if you're listening uh, via podcast, that uh, we are live uh, in the sanctuary on 
Wednesday nights you can come. We can social distance. We can do that. But uh, this will be downloaded at 8 o'clock every Wednesday, so you'll have it there, and you can go to the website if you've missed any of uh, previous uh, lessons on this or any of the others. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we just thank you. We just give you praise and honor and glory, Lord. We thank you for your most precious and holy word. Lord, we thank you for this document uh, that leads us, guides us, teaches us, helps us, corrects us, strengthens us, uh, does so much, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for those like Stephen that paid that ultimate price, Lord, the, so that we might be able to hold a Bible in our laps today, so that we might be freely able to go out and preach the gospel, so that we might be able to know our Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, we just thank you that uh, you remind us of our task today, Lord, as the church. What are you calling us to do and how to do it, Lord? And so, Father, may you be glorified in this teaching, Lord. May you be glorified in our church service. May you be glorified in our lives, Lord. In all this, we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. See you next week.